Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective. I'm Ted Berg, joined on the line by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. And Tim, I have done quite a bit of research into Timmy Trumpet in the last few days, just inspired as I've been by his work on uh, Edwin Diaz's entrance music, Narco, with, of course, the Dutch DJ duo Blaster Jacks. And I have been, I guess, a little bit disappointed to find the Timmy Trumpet Really, for and he's a he's an excellent trumpet player. I think that if you if you hear Diaz's song, if you're not a brass player, you should understand that the the tone he gets is just is it's really terrific and and very hard to pull off. But Timmy Trumpet, for a guy named Timmy Trumpet who's really good at the trumpet, doesn't play the trumpet all that often on his songs. He's more of a DJ guy. Oh, that's that's super disappointing. Why didn't he just do the entire song himself then? If he why did he have to team up with a, a Dutch DJ duo uh, in Blaster I think Jacks. that's, I think, you know, I, I'm, I have only dipped my toe into the world of big room house music, which is what <laughs> this is called. Um, it does seem like Timmy Trumpet does quite a bit of like synthesizing his trumpet, which I am cool with. That's something I, I toyed around with quite a bit myself with the trombone. Um, and, and he also, it also feels like, um, and I don't mean to dismiss big room house music. It feels like a lot of the songs sound very, very, very similar to Timmy Trumpet and Blaster Jax's Narco, just without that cool trumpet part. And so I guess really the credit here has to go to Edwin Diaz for distinguishing that from the pack. When are we going to get the uh, the side project from Timmy Trumpet and Teddy Trombone? Uh, I, I mean, I'm down. He can call me. I, I would need a couple months to get my... I like. It's a very physical. That's that's what's really impressive about the Timmy Trumpet thing to me is if he's not playing that often, it's really incredible that he can sound so good. If you go to his Instagram, because now I've been to his Instagram. First of all, looks like he has an amazing life, um, and then which is true of a lot of people on Instagram. But he does always seem to have a trumpet with him. Um, he just isn't playing it all that often, and uh, so uh, maybe he's practicing a ton. He must be practicing a ton because the, to get your mouth in shape like the armature. Uh, to sound that good, like such a broad tone, is a very physical thing. So uh, he's way ahead of me. I would need I would need some time to not embarrass myself in the presence of a guy like that. If you were going to carry a, a musical instrument around with you just for Instagram purposes, though, the trumpet would make some sense, right? Really no one is one. no one is like carrying a a cello around with them just for the Instagram likes. That is why I actually so. But the trumpet was my first instrument, and it was for its portability. That I picked it, it was I had seen at a Mets game. Um, back in the day, people could bring like there was just so many fewer restrictions about what you could could and couldn't do. I think there was also so much less uh, recorded music at the stadium, and there used to be a guy who would just pull out a trumpet and do the like the charge fanfare 
sometimes and i thought that was cool and so i want to and, and really what it was was it wasn't just that i thought it was cool that someone could do it at the mets game my sister was a singer and my sister was always singing and so i wanted to have something that i could pull out quickly and play to overpower my sister's singing <laughs> um and so that's why i went to the trumpet and then that that segued to the trombone uh someone who is better at his profession than I am at the trumpet or the trombone. Uh, someone who is maybe even better at his profession than Timmy Trumpet is at the trumpet is Jacob deGrom. How about that for a segue? <laughs> this is well done. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I was going to say that I, I think he's better uh, at his job than we are at our jobs, let alone our, our hobbies. Uh, and, and I mean, jokes on him. I don't have a job. <laughs> um, but, but uh, you know, the yes, Another just incredible, incredible uh, performance against the Washington Nationals this time from Jacob DeCrom. Uh, we got a qu- we're going to get go to a different reader question later. But one of one of the readers who who reached out to us this week wanted to know: Is this the the best start in starting pitching history for a pitcher? And it's like, you know, I don't know even where to go to com- compare it. But yeah, like it feels like it's got to be. Yeah, I can't imagine. Anyone has ever been this good, other than the fact that, like, probably guys are, are were, there was a time when it would have been four complete games. Um, but man, possibly the best outing of DeGrom's career 15 strikeout, two hit, complete game shutout, and just masterful, like throwing 102, hitting all of his spots, swings and misses, not throwing any balls. And, and and when you think back that this dates back to spring training, remember he was he was lights out in spring training too, which which doesn't count except that remember we were we were gawking at it at the time, like how can this guy be throwing ninety nine already? And it's like oh because he was tacking on velocity, now he's up to one hundred one, one hundred two. He has the uh, a higher average fastball velocity than Araldis Chapman this year, and you looked into it and found all sorts of informa- interesting information. Yeah, a, a few points. Uh... Yeah, like it's interesting how dominant he is in spring training because he doesn't have to be. And it's just like I feel like that's uh, a distillation of his competitiveness is that Mm -hmm. like if he's on a mound, it doesn't matter uh, if this counts in the standings, uh, who he's facing, what uniform they're wearing. He wants to get you out Uh, like he was upset when Michael Conforto took him deep in live batting practice. Um, In terms of a singular dominant performance, uh, I think Friday is probably it for him. Uh, As I wrote uh, on Monday morning, like if, if you're going to get into a barroom argument over what is the best start of Jacob deGrom's career, the other one that everyone will bring up is game five of the 2015 NLDS, which in which he only went six innings, was not dominant in any way, way, shape or form, had a runner in scoring position with fewer than two outs. I think he basically pitched that game as if it were extra innings these days, like every inning mm-hmm. seemed to start with a runner on second and he got out of it. Uh, but that was a very different kind of start for deGrom. Uh and then the things he's done this year, like the, the key thing that stands out is his efficiency. Because last year, the one gripe you could have about the way he pitched was it was 12 starts and it was only 68 innings. And part of that was a few starts where he, he came out, you know, after two or, th- or after three innings, I think was his shortest one against Philadelphia late in the season. But that he didn't go more than seven innings. I think mean, he went seven innings three times uh, and uh, not any longer than that. Um, and so he just wasn't as efficient as he had been in, in 18 and 19 when he would go eight innings with a little bit of frequency. Uh, but then this year, I mean, it's the pitches per inning is down to 13.1. It was 16-something uh, in 2020. Pitches per plate appearance, it's it's half a pitch per plate appearance difference. It's down to 
I think three seven from four two, which is a, a huge you know that's a pitch for every two batters you face. Uh, that he's he's getting guys out quicker. And usually when you see that, you think it's you know what Zach Wheeler did in 2020 for Philly. Like he's embracing early contact, put the ball in play, make the out. That's not what he's doing. It's not that. Uh, yeah. No one is. No one is putting the ball in, in play early against him. Uh, it so feels. I, I I tweeted this as but like I'm not even kidding. Like it's you hit a guy. Ta- you see a guy tap out to second base now against Iran, and I'm like ah, like it's disappointing when he does anything but strike people out. Yeah, it's uh, you know when you talk about like great individual starts, it's like there's a Kerry Wood 20 strikeout game feel mm-hmm. to it where. Uh, like the the hits don't even seem that well struck, uh, you know. Outside of like that one inning against Colorado where he gave up, I think the triple and the home run. Uh, it's hard to think of like what was really hard hit against him so far this year. Uh, and you know the he's getting a heading count like he's he's throwing first pitch strikes more than seventy percent of the time. Uh, it was only sixty percent last year. It's usually been about sixty five in his career. So he's getting ahead early. Uh, he's getting o two on almost fifty percent of batters. Uh, it's just under 50%. That's another thing that usually it's it's like 35 or 40%. And the major league average is 25% of counts you're going Yeah, O2. I mean, if, you, if you're if you 0-2 on someone, you basically have, like, uh, guys, uh, the, um, the league-wide on-base percentage after 0-2 has got to be like 100 or 150 or something. You know, you basically got him out at that point. Yeah, I meant to look that up, actually. Thanks thanks for reminding me. Uh, well, I, I don't know exactly what it is, <laughs> but it is low. It is, it's lower than the usual pitcher uh, and not... not uh, a DeGrom-like pitcher at the, uh, <laughs> at the plate. So it, it's just a, a lot of things he's doing that are like marginally better than in the past. And what's driving that, I think, is is the uh, improvement in his fastball. It's not just velocity. It's some movement on it. It's It's got a little bit more arm side run, which he's added slight, you know, he's added a bit to each year since 2018. So now it's moving twice as much as it did in 2018. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a fastball that, when it was 96 up in the zone with minimal movement, it was really good. It was really hard to hit. Uh, and right. now it's 99 up in the zone with double the movement, with, with more movement. Uh, and it's it's still rising. It still has that sense of a rising fastball because of the way uh, he spins it. Uh, that it's just, you know, it's a dominant fastball. Like he, his fastball operates the way a great late game reliever's fastball does. Like Josh Hader, like James Karinchak, those guys uh, in, in as closers, basically, uh, and yet he's doing it over eight or nine innings as a starter, uh, which, you know, then if you gear up for the fastball, he's got uh, uh, arguably the best slider in the game for a starter, uh, one of the best changeups in the game for a starter. Like, he, he hasn't even thrown a curveball uh, much. I think he's thrown it once all year, uh, which is also a very good secondary pitch. That would be a, a perfectly good second pitch for, for most starters, but it's his fourth and he barely throws it. Uh, it's just an embarrassment of riches, really, that he has at his disposal. So you mentioned this, is, and I'm going to put you on the spot, because you talk about how he's adding arm side run, how he's adding velocity, how everything's getting better. He's 33 years old, or 32 years old. How is this happening? You know, I, I think a large part of it is the the relative lack of innings on his arm, you know, that he came to pitching as late as he did. Uh, and, it, you know... But he had that, Tommy John, right? Like, cause it, so it's not like he has this like baby arm that is that's magical, right? Like he had he had the injury that everybody gets from from throwing too much, right? And he had it almost right away. You know, he, right. he started pitching uh, his senior year at at, at Stetson, 
uh, and then had the Tommy John his first full Who, his first professional. What how, what was he what was his deal in high school? Was he not pitching in high school? Like did it what I just I who is this high school coach who had this guy like playing shortstop and saw that arm and didn't think like could we maybe use him? Well, I mean at at Stetson it was and basically thank you. like a big thank you to that guy. <laughs> they they went into, you know, he was the light hitting, slick fielding shortstop at Stetson. Uh and they went into his senior year with the idea that, you know, maybe we'll try him out late in games. Maybe he'll be our closer. Uh and uh you know, you talk to the Mets scouts who who scouted him that year. Uh, Stetson wasn't like a very they weren't as good as they they sometimes can be. Uh they didn't wasn't, have a was lot it, of pro wasn't prospects. Wasn't it like was Tony Bernstein's kid on the team? Was that? Uh, I don't think so. Or, or, don't, no, no, that was that was that was Dan, that was with Daniel Murphy. That was with Daniel Murphy. Sorry. Okay. So on. uh, you know, one of their scouts had you know was at Stetson Pro Day and decided to stay to the very end to see uh, Jacob Degrom, at, who he liked as a shortstop, but you know knew couldn't really hit uh, to see him at the end and, and just fell in love with uh, the potential of his arm. It wasn't you know he was it wasn't like he was a dominant pitcher his senior year. He had like a four and a half ERA. Uh, he, he walked some guys. He didn't strike out guys at, at a ridiculous rate or anything like that. Like you had to see the potential. He was throwing 92. Um, you had to see kind of the ease of his delivery and DeGrom himself didn't love, didn't really like pitching. He preferred to be an everyday player. Uh, there's a story of how he was playing in a summer league, uh, for Davey Johnson. And when Davey Johnson wanted him to pitch, DeGrom quit. Um, so that's how much he wanted to stay an everyday player. Maybe that explains why the high school coach <laughs> took the tact he did. Um, but so you can, I feel like you get a sense of DeGrom as he's gotten older, like falling more in love with the art of pitching and finding these little once ways to improve. Once you learn you're this good at it, right? Once you're it's like, oh, it turns out I'm the best ever. So I, I guess this is okay. I'll do this. Right. It's, especially now that he can still, he can still hit a little bit, you know, he gets a chance to, to show that off too. Uh, you know, you you get the sense that he's he's discovering more and more about how to unlock more of his potential as he gets older. Uh, you know, I I don't know how mon- how much longer it can continue that his velocity can continue going up. Like I expected it to plateau. <laughs> um, honestly, I expected it to plateau after 2018, uh, and it's had its most dramatic increase since then. Uh, but I keep expecting each year, like he's not going to throw harder. You know, this year I, I thought he's not going to throw harder than last year because he got more games got 100 more games uh and we'll see how that goes but it has it's it's uh remarkable to watch it's a joy to watch personally uh to see a guy operate at this level uh as consistently as he does because he's got the stuff but he's also got this pitching know-how and this competitiveness to get himself out of the rare difficult situation he finds himself in i would say for certain he is the first pitcher the first player in baseball history to strike out 15 batters in a game and go two for four and have both his strikeout per nine rate and batting average decrease after that performance. <laughs> uh, I, I, the only thing I can think of to compare this to, and it's, it's like the whole game is just completely different than, in, uh, than it was 21 years ago or 22 years ago. The only thing I've ever seen like this is is peak Pedro Martinez, and that's it. Like that in my and like Clayton Kershaw is an amazing pitcher, and you know with the Mets we saw Ari Dickey have a, a miracle year, and and Johan Santana have some have some great performances, and Matt Harvey and Harvey Day and and all of that excitement. Um, I can't remember anything. I can't like the only other where it was like the only other time I had felt like you're watching a pitcher and you're like this these hitters have no chance like no chance 
And the only other time I've I felt that way was Pedro Martinez. Yeah, and it's it's a similar style of delivery, right? Just that smooth delivery where mm-hmm. the ball's coming out on top of you, uh, and it feels like you can manipulate it so so well. Uh, the stuff just jumps at you the way it did. And the same Pedro. thing where it's like, oh, this guy has like the three best pitches in baseball. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not like oh, he has the best fastball and and his his uh, his secondary stuff is good enough to make that to make it work. It's like oh, he has like every every pitch he throws is the best pitch. And so you know, it, like if if Jacob Degrom wanted to make his next start and be like, I'm not going to throw fastballs at all. I don't know how long he'd last and probably taxing on the arm after a while, but. I feel like he'd be fine. I feel like he could he could just like take a pitch out one day. Like oh, today, I don't feel like throwing my slider. Um, like if he was Zach Grinky, might try something like that, um, and he'd be fine because it's 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 like they have no you have no option for for hitting any of these pitches. It's it's so cool. Um, I I want like I want him to show like make sure you're teach talking. I and I know we know from Marcus Stroman and and everything we've heard from the Mets starters that they are picking his brain at all time. Like find out how he's adding velocity into his low 30s because get some of that sauce, you know? Like that's that's what you need. It's it's funny. He he kind of did like the removing of a pitch. He kind of did that earlier in the, in the season. Like the first start he barely I don't even know if he threw a single changeup. Uh and mm-hmm. then the second start like his slider wasn't very sharp in the first inning and a half. And he just ditched it and threw the changeup the rest of the way. And both of those starts turned out pretty good, if you remember. Uh, yeah. So, like, he can get away with just two of those four pitches. You know, it's it's interesting to to remember, like, starts in the past where he just started throwing the curveball more, which is a pitch he really has, has almost cut out entirely from his repertoire. But I feel like it was a start against the Braves where, like, he didn't like his slider, the changeup wasn't sharp. So he became a fastball-curveball guy the third time through the order and still was very effective. Well, speaking of starts against the Braves, and this is a Mets podcast, but the Braves, we know, were the team I think a lot of Mets fans and, and analysts were seeing entering the season as their biggest competition in the NL East. Still are. I think that's still the case. But uh, if if schadenfreude is your thing, then uh, you might like to know that the Braves, in a doubleheader on Sunday, managed one total hit in 14 innings. Yeah, do you think do you count that seven inning no hitter by Madison Bumgarner as a no hitter? I think you have to. I know it doesn't like I, I don't. First of all, I don't understand like oh no, but it's not like who who or is anyone to say that it's not official? Like I don't I don't understand why like a no hitter is something that needs to be officially determined, right? Like that's not a that's not it's a it's a frivolity. So why do you get to say oh no that doesn't count as a no hitter? I think it's a it's a seven inning no hitter. I think it's got to be like kind of its own thing. But he pitched a complete game and he didn't allow any hits. So if he wants to say he threw a no hitter, uh, I'm not going to contend with him, uh, especially because he's a he's a big man and and like pretty angry, you know. So like I'm not going to mess with with Madison Bumgarner on that one. Yeah, like I, I think of uh, like Pedro Martinez's perfect game against the Padres, where you know he retired the first 27 batters, but then in extra innings allowed the Bip Roberts double. Uh, that that you know that is a perfect game in my mind. <laughs> like he it's retired twenty seven yeah. guys. It's not his fault the offense didn't do anything. Harvey Haddix is twelve inning perfect. Like that's the greatest game ever pitched. Uh, he got in. He pitched twelve perfect innings. Uh, it's not his fault that his offense was terrible. I mean, you got to pitch to the. You got to pitch to the score. You know what can you say, Harvey Haddix? Like do a little, do a little bit better next time. Uh, Jack, Jack Morris would have handled that lineup a little differently. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the Mets offense, which has given us some agita in the, in the early part of the season, I feel like 
it's coming along right now. If you watched Sunday's game, uh, Michael Conforto had a, had a double off the wall, but he hit a few balls hard. Uh, Lindor has, has been hitting the ball hard. Pete Alonso is is hot. He's got five homers. He We saw that in the Chicago series, and, it, and it's carried over. He had a monster shot on Sunday, a dead, dead center field. Uh, Brandon Nimmo continues to hit. J.D. Davis, when he is, is playing, is hitting. It feels like this upcoming series against the Red Sox, Tuesday, Wednesday, they get Nick Pavetta and Garrett Richards, two guys, two righties. Uh, neither has been overpowering either this season or really in their careers. Both have been exceptionally wild this season, which definitely favors the Mets' patient offense. This feels like, to me, and making predictions about two baseball games is a very, very stupid thing to do, but this feels like where the Mets' offense shows up for the year. Yeah, you know, you're getting a, a little bit of the same feeling about the offense that, that we had uh, you know, back when they played, last time they played the Phillies when they had like the doubleheader sweep and they won the Wednesday game. They weren't putting up a ton of runs. I think they scored like four, five, and five in those those three games. But it just felt like the the offense was, it was just about there. Uh, and then they, they had to sit for a couple days before uh, playing Colorado because the brain outs. Uh, you know, they had the day off Monday. Hopefully that, that doesn't interrupt any momentum. You know, you got to throw out Saturday. <laughs> Saturday is the, the fly in the ointment in this analysis. Uh, but you are getting the sense with, with Conforto, with Lindor, uh, that they're, they're, uh, they're getting there, if not there yet. Uh, Alonzo, my, my favorite thing that happens on Alonzo home runs is that, you know, th- there's obviously the certain kind of Alonzo home run that off the bat, you know, it's, it's out of the stadium, like the one at Wrigley. Uh, but there's other ones that are like more like line drives, like the one on on Sunday, and the center fielder starts going after it like it's been hit by anyone else, and it might go out, but you're not sure. And then after like four steps, he realizes that there's no chance, uh, and the ball is 50 feet over the fence. Uh, right. And so it's it's always fun for me to see like the outfielder. When do they give up on those? Uh, and Victor Robles gave up at the right time uh, on Sunday with that ball over his head. Um, so I, th- I think you're getting the offense uh, toward where you want it to be. Richards on Tuesday for, for Boston has been has been really bad so far. The ERA is six and a half, and it's kind of an open question whether he stays in that rotation much longer. Pavetta has been better, uh, but is still Nick Pavetta not a guy that you expect to come? He's in been, and throw be- seven he's been better better in in the results, but the you know like the peripherals are are not very good. Right, and and you're getting uh, this week. I believe it's all it's five right-handers. Uh, so if you're the Mets, that's that's what you prefer. Uh, you know, see what you can do against those. They see Chase Anderson again on Friday or, or scheduled to with Philadelphia. So this is a, a good opportunity. You're, you're facing two teams for whom uh, pitching is not necessarily their strength. Uh, you know, the Phillies, we, the, the Zacks, Wheeler, Neflin are, are pretty good along with Nola. Um, but you, you've got an opportunity, certainly against Boston, uh, to see what your offense can do. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing how they're, how a guy like David Peterson holds down the Red Sox lineup and whether DeGrom can strike out the world again. Uh, but th- those, those two games, I think, are, are really fascinating for how good can the Mets be against a team that is playing much better than most people expected. Yeah, and, and I would say, you know, it's easy to it's so much easier to dismiss the small sample size blips when it's someone else's team, right? When it's like, when you feel like the Red Sox have 14 wins. Like, ah, that's not going to, that's not going to, you know, like if it was the Mets, I would be like flying high, buying playoff tickets, everything. But when you see it, it's like the Red Sox, and no one expected the Red Sox to be, you know, the team to beat in the AL East by by any stretch this year. Uh, and so, 
you know, from from the outside standpoint, it makes it a lot easier to be like, ah, the Red Sox aren't that good. They're not going to be a first place team all year. They, you know, like this is, hey, let's let's get some regression to the mean going and and have it come, uh, you know, to the Mets' benefit would be would be a nice a nice place to start. Uh, because I I think I, I think you're right, and and you had that point in your this week in Mets in this week in Mets column. Uh, about this being a test for the pitching seven, that's right. They are a, a pretty good offensive team. JD Martinez, a very very good offensive player who's having a great year. Um, it's a it's a test. I feel like they're up to it, and and you know it's just. Um, I think the starting, I you know the starting rotation, the back end was something we had a few questions about. It's been good, we know, and I'm hoping uh, we are going to have some some. There's going to be a little bit of of reinforcements coming is that is that uh, can you give me more information on on carlos carrasco yeah so carrasco still in florida but but working in uh inner squad games like throwing two hitters has been has been doing that for a little while has been throwing uh, i think he's got at least two or three uh, outings of at least four innings uh and so the mets have kind of uh they've, they've put it on the schedule now as like a mid-may timetable for him so a few more outings down there before he can come back to the the big league rotation which probably means uh, another start or two from your fifth starter. You know, they sent Joey Lucchese down uh, on Friday uh, after his start in Chicago. Uh, so they don't need him for 10 days because of the, the multiple days off this week. Mm-hmm. They can skip him, and they, and they are with DeGrom going on, on Wednesday. Uh, and then uh, they could bring him or Jordan Yamamoto or someone else up to make a start on, like, May 3rd or 4th in St. Louis. You might need one more after that, and then Carrasco could be back for the the May 13th, May 14th, that area, Ides of May uh, turn in the rotation for, for what would be the fifth starter. Uh, and then you've got Noah Syndergaard, who uh, threw in an intra-squad game. Uh, I believe that was on Saturday. Uh, it was his first time throwing to hitters since his Tommy John surgery last March. A nice first step for him uh, through an inning. Uh, and you know now he can kind of build off of that the same way you expect a guy to build in spring training. It's probably a little bit longer than the usual spring training buildup. You know, it's not just going to be like six starts and he's ready to go. But mm-hmm. you know, an inning this time, maybe two the next, three after that. That kind of progression for him uh, for a June return. Do you think with Carrasco they're being extra cautious because not only because of his history uh, of a guy who's who's had some. Uh, you know, usually you get 100 to 150 innings out of over a season and not a 200-inning guy, um, but also because you know, the starting pitching's been good, everyone's healthy, there's no rush. Does it? Do you get the sense that this is like, we're just going to go slow with Carrasco? Like, if, if they wanted him back in a, in a week, because if he's throwing four innings, like, maybe maybe just let him finish stretching out at the major league level. But if they're trying to be careful, which maybe makes some sense right now, given how well the, the starting pitching has been? Yeah, I, I think the the couple dynamics there. You've got reasonable starters in your rotation to replace him. It's not like they're getting bombed every fifth day with whoever they throw out there in Carrasco's place. Uh, and Carrasco is, you know, you, you mentioned the innings thing. Like he's you, you're not going to push a guy right away uh, this year of all years after not throwing very many innings last year. Uh, and he didn't have really any any spring training, so. In general, when a guy, you know, if a guy gets hurt, at, if Carrasco had gotten hurt at the end of spring training, if he'd been pitching in Grapefruit League games, he was up to four innings at that point. Like, he'd have a good baseline for the season. And then mm. it's kind of the amount of time you take off is the amount of time you need to build back up. But since he didn't have that foundation yet, uh, it takes a little bit longer to build it. And it's going to be the same with Syndergaard uh, and the same with Seth Lugo, by the way. Uh, that because they didn't have the regular spring training 
to set that foundation for the season, uh, they've got to establish it now. And you, you're a little bit more cautious with those guys generally uh, than you are with the guys who had a normal spring. Give me an over-under day for the first time I see Seth Lugo coming out of the bullpen in a Mets, in a not at the alternate site, not in a spring training game, <laughs> in a Mets game. Uh, I would say he's behind, well, maybe not too far behind Carrasco because he's a reliever. He doesn't have to build up quite the same way. I, yeah, I would say like May 14th. Uh, and what about, give me an over-under for Syndergaard. Syndergaard, uh, let, let me look at the Mets schedule. Let me see, what, what team would it make sense to bring Noah Syndergaard back against? Uh, I, I would say... When did they uh, play the Yankees at home? <laughs> just just let them loose. Uh, I, I would do you say... Think the, do, you, do you know how much Syndergaard would resent hearing that? Like, oh, they're going to wait for a soft team to, to bring Syndergaard back? Like, that's not what he wants. The, Give that's, him the Yankees. That that's you inferring, not me implying. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think no, actually. So it makes sense in June. They've got another one of these these weeks with two days off against Baltimore, uh, and then after that they play uh, several days in a row. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to do the quick math. They play 13 days in a row uh, against the Padres, Cubs, Nats, and Braves. Uh, I think that's the stretch. He comes back in probably around like June 13th or so. We got a great question from at. Uh, from this is from from Twitter and it's from someone who goes by Clay Davis. I don't think it is actually the the character from The Wire, um, but if, if he's welcome to ask us questions, uh, this is a really interesting question um, and something that maybe you have some insight into. What are the chances he wants to know that the TV crews continue to broadcast from home during road games post twenty twenty one? Does Tim worry about access to players getting back to pre COVID levels? Given how things may change with increased video conferencing and tech, and etc., and how do players enjoy that setup? Yeah, so I think there is probably some concern from TV and radio broadcasters uh, that the the networks that they work for, the teams they work for, might opt to do less travel and do more remote game calling. I think that's been something that's been on the radar for for that in that industry uh, for a few years. We've seen, um, you know. Teams do that. Networks do that with like uh, soccer when it's it's global, uh, when it's overseas or something, and have them calling it from home. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's that's a concern. I I would not expect the Mets to do that with either because of the rich tradition they have in broadcasting and the the popularity right. of both booths for them uh, and the level of pushback they would get from very established presences in those booths. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's a possibility. Uh, Probably I will say, I will say, and and I hate, I hate saying it because I want Gary Keith and Ron to be able to travel if they want to travel. From a viewing perspective, the only time I think about it is when they talk about it and like excuse themselves at some time. Like so sometimes they'll be like, "Well, you know, remember we can't see the game from here." Uh, they do such a good job that otherwise I would have no idea. If they just never mentioned it, I would have no idea. And, and one thing you, you wonder with that is whether, you know, they, they might still have a, a situation where Gary, Keith and Ron travel, but the all of the other people that go with that usually go with them to do the broadcast, to produce the broadcast, to, to give them the camera shots they want might be limited. Mm-hmm. And it becomes, you know, the same kind of deal where it's the home team providing basically the, the one broadcast that you simulcast on your network. Which uh, I also kind of enjoy because I love it when they, they're like, they're obviously telling a story about like some random guy on the bench. And so it's just like some fifth outfielder on the Cubs that they're that they're zoomed in. And like now it's on Gary Cohen to like come up with something to say about this guy. <laughs> 
and and gary is not shy in pointing out when they don't get the replays they expect right uh that so and, and then for for me in terms of access you know there's a our access is determined by the collective bargaining agreement and that's obviously up for negotiation at the end of this season there's always concern that they're going to reduce uh our clubhouse access uh and certainly that's that's even higher than usual because of what's gone on the past season plus you know i think there's there's been the thought process uh, in these negotiations and, and like the BBWAA, the Baseball Writers Association of America, which governs our access. Uh, like we can make recommendations, but we're not like at the bargaining table with the mm-hmm. owners and the players union. Uh, so it's a chip that we don't have like a final say in how it gets 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 taken. Um, you know, I, I think there's been concern that uh, the teams have wanted to push like a post game access that looks more closely like what baseball's regular like postseason post-game access mm-hmm. is like where the star players come out to a podium uh and you just do kind of group press conferences there uh in the postseason they do open the, the clubhouse I, I think the uh regular season they would want to basically like the clubhouse is closed post-game we'll bring out the the manager the pitcher and two guys uh, well, the same way so they people, do on zoom currently uh people i think just for context is because this is something i didn't know until uh I made some mistakes in in early in my career. It is expected if you were in a clubhouse post game that you are working on a story about the game and you are asking players questions about that game, not like a big general feature. Unless you've worked out something with the guy like individually ahead of time. If you go in there asking him about his cat, they're going to be like, "What what are you talking about? We just played a game." Yeah, yeah, that's the the uh let's see the the unwritten rules of reporter etiquette are, you know, don't talk to the starter the day he pitches uh, before the game uh, and don't ask pregame questions postgame, which is mm-hmm. is really difficult in, in this current setup because, like, we only ever talk to starting pitchers postgame. Uh, we right. don't get them pregame ever. Uh, so if, you you know, you want to ask a question of Jacob deGrom or Marcus Stroman about how they're using a certain pitch and they don't use it in a game, it's, it's hard to do that. Or you want to ask them something else, there's really not that opportunity to do that. Um, so I, I think the concern would be that post-game access might be curtailed in a different way. Like under normal circumstances, we're allowed in the clubhouse 10 minutes after the game ends. Usually the manager speaks during that time, so there's a, a little bit more time. Uh, and look, it's usually a, a crowd around the pitcher and two two guys, but it's always nice to be able to go around to different players. And, you know, if Pete Alonso hits two home runs in a game, sure, everyone's going to talk to Pete Alonso, but it can be nice to talk to... Uh, the guy who was on deck, you know, if it, Michael Conforto hit behind him, went 0 for 5, but might have something nice to say about Alonzo. That's nice to get different perspectives that way. Or if you notice something small in a game to ask a guy. Uh, hopefully pregame access stays the same. That's really the the lodestar for uh, baseball access is mm-hmm. we get the hour or 50 minutes before a game in the clubhouse. That's the best of any of the, the North American professional sports. Uh, that that has been cut itself in recent times. It was as much as like an hour and a half when I started uh, in 2009. But uh, it's still, you know, that that's what allows different beat writers to write different stories is not talking to the same people pregame right. every day uh, as everyone else. So that the it, it would be very frustrating if postgame access is is changed. Uh, it'd be frustrating if any of our access is changed from what it used to be. Uh, but I think the pregame access is what it, you, you've got to maintain. Uh, for us to be able to do our jobs as well as as we want to do them. Well, and I'll say, uh, you might not want to say it, but I would say it's changed a lot already by the the nature of stadiums and and the way stadiums are set up now. 
it once was that that players had no place to hide sort of you know and like you hate to say it that way but if you wanted to talk to someone before a game like at at Shea Stadium like if you were in the Mets clubhouse you could find that guy because he had to come to his locker at some point I don't know what the bowels of City Field look like beyond the Mets clubhouse but I imagine it's very very cool far cooler than talking to me you know and so a lot of times a lot of times and and as someone who has never been a beat writer you don't get to develop the same type of relationships with players you kind of have to count on them doing you a favor um you know and then you just sort of wind up standing at a guy's locker looking sad until he comes out like three minutes before batting practice and is like and you're like hey you got a second like oh not really i gotta go hit and then you have gone all the way to city field for no reason like that's a that's a thing that has happened increasingly since and and i think happens at, at more and more stadiums as they get uh renovated and as they as they are replaced with places with more space for the players which is a good thing um but it's a it is a makes a difficult makes a more difficult task for a baseball reporter and and as such uh perhaps a, a little bit less color for for the baseball fans i don't know i don't i don't like to get too complainy about uh all the cool things i've gotten to do in in my life as a baseball fan uh be spending a lot of time just hanging around clubhouses uh, being one of them, or at least seemed that way for a long time, it does get old after a while because you just wind up standing there. Um, but it is it is sort of a, a, a thing with ever changes, especially players are on their own programs. Players are looking at more data. Players are having more meetings, like all of these different things. Uh, as the challenges grow for Major League Baseball players, so do they grow for uh, those those people covering them. Do you think that players enjoy it uh, as it is with like the, the video conferencing and, and not having open clubhouses. You know, I think, first of all, I want to make the point that uh, one of the reasons travel is so important, like why it's it's really important to travel as a beat writer is because when the team is on the road, like the road clubhouse times better. has fewer times places. Better. To, yeah. You've got fewer media there because you're it's basically a, down to the beat like, writers. Even at City Field, I would always just try to cover road teams when I was doing national stuff. And like, if you really wanted to talk to the Mets, like I would be better off going to a series in Philadelphia than than a series at City Field. Right. Uh, the the players, I it does not. You know, this is like one of those things that I would ask guys if I had informal access with them. Uh, I don't think they love the Zoom setup. Like it's still awkward. It's no one likes Zoom. Impersonal and alienating to an extent. Uh, We're I do, all done with like, Zoom. I'll give the Mets a little bit of credit, well, or I'll discredit some other teams. I think teams like the Dodgers and Rockies actually don't allow your face to appear as a reporter when you're asking them questions. Like you are just blacked out. It's just your name on Zoom, uh, and I think that's that's really uh, impersonalizing. Uh, so I mean, with the Rockies, they have like three guys, right? So everybody knows which guys they're talking. They can tell from the voice. Like it's, it's not that dehumanizing, right? Everybody knows they know it's Thomas Harding. <laughs> they know it's Nick Groke. Uh, right. So um, uh, I think players in general would prefer to not see us as much as possible. I think there are, there are certainly um, uh, outliers to that. There are players who enjoy talking to the media. You know, the recently retired Jay Bruce was very good with the media. Jerry Blevins uh, has obviously been very good with the media uh, over the course of his career. Uh, guys who enjoy talking and, and kind of uh, BSing with different reporters about different things. And there are some guys like that in the Mets clubhouse now, uh, but uh, I think in like the gen, the average ball player probably 
if given the choice, like you can have media in all the time or no media, would pick no media. Yeah, um, I mean, I hate to say it, but like, why would you not pick no media? You, why would you like, oh, you can have like, you can get changed in peace or you can get changed in front of 50 people sort of awkwardly milling around around the middle of the room. Like, I, I, I get it. Like, I think we, I want the media as a base, a member of the Baseball Writers Association. I recognize that like, it's important for people like us and for fans that baseball media have access. But from the player's perspective, you could see why they might not want that. Even if it's like long-term bet, even if it's, and someone needs to explain that, like in the long term, you want to be covered by independent sources and by people who are going to tell interesting stories about you and, and cultivate, you know, fandom in the new generations and all these different things. Like that's, that's for the good of the game ultimately. But if you're just a guy who's trying to go about your work this day and your work is playing baseball, I could understand not wanting to the media there. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, we've, we've had some conversations about whether we get back to any semblance of uh, normalcy this year, whether like it, we can do um, like grabbing players on the field after batting practice in person uh, in a way that we haven't been able to in a while. Uh, I don't think we're getting into a clubhouse this season, uh, but if, if, if that happens, uh, you know, I, I'm... I guess anxious is the word, uh, not eager. Anxious to see what the, the response is from players uh, if and when we are back in a clubhouse, uh, whether we get a lot of eye rolls or whether there is some, uh, if, if they do actually uh, appreciate having us back in any to any degree. Literally maybe any degree. Maybe they miss us. Maybe they, maybe they miss it. You know, maybe there's so much weirdness with COVID that it's like, I mean, how many things have you determined that you like, I never, I didn't realize I would miss riding the subway. I miss riding the subway. Like that was a convenient way of getting around, and I haven't been able to do it for a year and a half. Maybe if you're a baseball player, like I miss talking to old Ted Berg. You know that guy who would come around and ask me my favorite sandwich. I don't get it. I never got it. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd tell that guy about a sandwich right now. I mean, there's just they have no way of making of checking whether Mike Puma is wearing his Puma sneakers at the at the moment, which Pete Alonso loves checking up on. <laughs> Uh, th- these are important things that need that require our access uh, to remain the same, if not if not improve and increase uh, in the future. If you have a question for the Metrospective, you can get at us at t- at OG Tedberg or at Tim Britton on Twitter, or email me at asktedberg at gmail and we will very likely read it and discuss it on the air. Um, if and when our show returns to iTunes, we've had a little bit of tech issues there, uh, but it is being worked on, I understand. Uh, you can please rate us and review us. Uh, please subscribe on Spotify, listen everywhere you can listen. We appreciate the support. And Tim, uh, I appreciate you, uh, as always, joining me to talk about the Mets. Not awkward at all. Adios. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs> <laughs>